Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, here at Whitefields, what we like to do, we like to study through books of the Bible. And so we've been studying through the book of 2 Corinthians chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And today we come to chapter 10. So would you please, as you turn there in your Bibles and your Bible apps, would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us. Lord, thank you for your grace in communicating your heart and your will for our lives. Lord, help us that as we hear it today, we would be transformed by it, that we would be receptive to it, and that we would be responsive to your word in all the ways that it, it needs to be responded to. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning help us, uh, give us attentive minds and receptive hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I have this recurring dream. This is true. I have this recurring dream in which um, I'm with some people, right? They're like the kind of people that I like highly regard, right? Like highly respect, the kind of people I look up to and admire, and I really want like their affirmation. And as I'm with them, I suddenly discover that the nature of our time together is not what I thought it was. You see, whereas I thought that we were just hanging out and being together, suddenly I come to discover that we're at some sort of conference or large gathering and I'm scheduled to go up on stage and give like a speech or a message, but I have absolutely nothing prepared, right? Like I have nothing to say and nothing to prepare it. But then I just like whisk me onto the stage and hand me a microphone and I'm standing there in front of all these people and I've got nothing to say. And then I look down and I'm wearing my pajamas. And not only am I unprepared like to say anything, I'm also like underdressed and just totally unprepared. And, and there I am on this big stage right in front of all these people being asked to speak in front of all these people who I want to impress, but I'm so unprepared, and it's just a huge failure and a terrible embarrassment. And it's like a recurring dream that I have not infrequently, right? So as it turns out, though, that type of dream is actually pretty common. Um, I've asked several friends of mine who are pastors, have you ever had a dream like that? And all of the ones I asked said, yes, I have actually had a dream like that, some version of being somewhere where I'm ill-prepared and under-equipped for the thing that I'm supposed to do at that moment. According to researchers, this is actually one of the most common recurring dreams, some version of being under-prepared or ill-equipped for a very important task that you have to do. And, and I think that's because this is one of our most common fears and anxieties as human beings. Well, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle is going to remind us of something very important, and that is this, that behind all of the problems and all the troubles of this world, there's a very real spiritual battle that is taking place. And this spiritual battle is the thing which is actually driving many of the conflicts and problems in this world. This battle is the battle for the souls of people, and this battle affects you and me. This battle affects us, but in order for us to effectively engage in this battle and for us to navigate this world that we live in that is 
under this, you know, has this spiritual battle going on. In order for us to do that, we need to understand the nature of the battle we're engaged in, and we need to be equipped with the right weapons for this battle. It reminds me of that famous scene from the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember the scene? Indiana Jones, he's in this like marketplace in the Middle East. And then out of the woodwork, all these people come out of the market and they try to kill him. All these people trying to stab him and kill him with swords and, and knives. And he keeps evading them until at one point, just the whole marketplace, like everybody, you know, this, they part like the Red Sea and there's just this big opening in the market. And this guy steps forward and he's like the master swordsman. And he starts like spinning and twirling this sword, just like showing off his prowess and his skill as a swordsman. And it's very clear that Indiana does not stand a chance against this guy and his sword. And so Indiana reaches into his waistband to grab his weapon. But instead of pulling out a sword to fight a sword battle, he pulls out a gun and he shoots the guy from across the marketplace. Well, the point of the story is never bring a sword to a gunfight. Because here's the deal, no matter how good you are with a sword, if you don't understand the nature of the battle, right, that it's not a sword fight, it's a gunfight, if you're not fighting with the right weapon for the battle, you can't possibly win. In the same way, it's important that we understand the nature of the real battle that we're engaged in, and it's important that we understand who our real enemy is. You see, throughout the Bible, we're told that there exists a very real enemy of our souls, one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. But sometimes what can happen is we can lose sight of the nature of the real battle we're engaged in, and we can forget who the real enemy is, and instead we can be tempted to fight the wrong battles against the wrong people using the wrong weapons. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle, he's writing to the Christians back then and to us today to remind us that the real battle we're engaged in is not a battle against flesh and blood, but a spiritual battle against the enemy of our souls. The Corinthian Christians, like many of us today, had lost sight of who their real enemy was. And as a result, some of these Christians were turning against each other rather than linking arms and locking shields as brothers and sisters to fight the real battle and the real enemy. Here in these opening verses of chapter 10, Paul wants to remind us of the nature of the battle we're engaged in so that we're not unequipped or ill-prepared and so that we don't get off track and engage in friendly fire. Well, the title of today's message is The Real Battle, and here's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see this, that we can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence in God's power and relying on God's truth, knowing that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory. So I'll tell you that sentence one more time. I'd love it if you'd write it down, take a photo of it, take that thought with you as you go into this week, but this will also be our guide as we work our way through the verses in this passage. So here it is one more time. We can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence in God's power and relying on God's truth, knowing that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory. So let's look at the first part of that. We can engage in the spiritual battle. Here's what Paul says here in the beginning of chapter 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. 
See, Paul the Apostle, he had a strained relationship with the Christians in Corinth. That's one of the reasons why he wrote this letter. Paul and the Corinthians had a long history together. They had a lot of history, a lot of water under the bridge. Paul had been their pastor, their first pastor. He was the one who started their church. He was their first pastor. But then after a couple of years, he left Corinth. And even after he left Corinth, he still kept in touch with them through correspondence, via letters, as well as through a series of personal visits. But in the years since Paul had left Corinth, there had been this growing faction of people within the church there in Corinth that didn't really appreciate Paul's continued involvement in the matters of their church. And this group became increasingly critical of Paul, and they let their criticisms be known. They were vocal about their criticisms. Because the reason, uh, you know, perhaps the reason why uh, these people didn't like Paul is because Paul had said some things that... They didn't appreciate. You see, from reading First and Second Corinthians, we know that Paul had written several letters to the Corinthians, some of which are in our Bibles and some of which are not. And Paul had made at least one personal visit to Corinth in recent times. Now, in his letters, Paul had taken it upon himself, we can see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians, to rebuke the Corinthians and to correct them for some of the things they were doing that were wrong. And some of the people in Corinth, perhaps the ones who had been rebuked, they didn't like the fact that Paul was all up in their business telling them what to do. Now, Paul, of course, he felt that he had the right to do this, and he felt that this was his calling as an apostle, not only as their pastor in the past, but now as an apostle. And this is why this particular group of people in Corinth had begun to challenge Paul's apostolic authority. They were going around telling people that Paul wasn't really a true apostle, or they might have said that he wasn't qualified to be a spiritual leader. And therefore, they said, nobody should listen to anything he has to say. You see, in order to challenge Paul's authority as an apostle, these people took aim at Paul's character. They tried to assassinate his character. For example, they had said, you know, Paul, he is a man who is not a man of his word. He doesn't keep his word. He says one thing and he does another, you know, and Paul addressed that earlier in this same letter. But now, Paul's addressing another attack that they brought against his character in which they were essentially accusing him of being two-faced, of lacking integrity, and of being a coward. As evidence of this, these people pointed out that Paul was very bold when he wrote letters to them, but when he came in person, he was weak and timid. See what Paul's saying there in verse 1 is not that he is one way when he's with them face to face and another way when he writes them letters. He's responding to an accusation that they made against him, that he was two-faced, that he lacked integrity, that he was one way when he was far away, but he was timid when he was close, kind of like a dog who barks at other dogs who are far away, but when the other dogs get closer, they get scared and they get quiet. See, here in verse 1, Paul is saying this. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is speaking to the faction of people in the Corinthian church who were defaming him and slandering him and trying to turn other people against him. They had claimed that Paul was bold in his letters, but timid in person. And Paul says, okay, fine. Well, let's try this. Let me write to you now with meekness and gentleness, and let's see if that works. So he says in verse 2, I beg of you, 
that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You see, Paul's been talking about how he's planning to make a personal visit to Corinth in the near future. And Paul's saying, look, when I come to you next in my next visit, I am prepared to be very bold and very direct with those who have been saying these slanderous things against me, but I really hope it won't be necessary to do so. These people were accusing Paul of walking according to the flesh. To walk according to the flesh is a Greek phrase which means to act in a way that is unspiritual or even sinful. In the New Testament, this phrase, to walk according to the flesh, it is the opposite of walking according to the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh, the Bible says, are sinful actions which are opposed to God's will. So these people who were attacking Paul's character, they were accusing him of being carnal and being unspiritual, perhaps even sinful. And this is a pretty serious accusation that they were leveling against Paul, to which Paul is now going to respond in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul says, sure, I walk in the flesh in the sense that I'm a flesh and blood human being. But... The battle we're engaged in is not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle against spiritual forces. Essentially, Paul is saying this. He's saying, hey, you guys who are attacking me, you need to remember and you need to understand that we are indeed in a battle, but it's not a battle between you and me, right? I am not your enemy and you are not my enemy, Rather than attacking me, let's remember who the real enemy is and remember that we are supposed to be on the same team. This reminds us of what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 where he said this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this is an important passage, both in Ephesians 6 and this related passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And they teach us a few very important truths about the spiritual battle we are engaged in. For example, here are some things that they teach us. Number one, there is an enemy of your souls. There is an enemy of your souls. Number two, your primary enemy is not other people. And number three, you can and must engage in this spiritual battle. Now, you know the word Satan, right? You know that's not like his name, right? Like his mail doesn't go to like Mr. Satan, right? That's not like his first name. It's not like short for something else, right? Satan is a Hebrew word which simply means adversary. That's what it means. He is the adversary or enemy. Your real enemy, therefore, is not your spouse. Your real enemy is not people who you work with or people who have hurt you or people who disagree with you or people who hold different opinions than you do about social or political issues. It's not, uh, these people are not our primary or real enemy. Our real enemy is the adversary of our souls, Satan, and our battle is a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces of evil that are at the root of the conflicts and problems in this world. You see, if we forget who our real adversary is, 
we can easily fall into the same trap and mistake that this faction in the Corinthian church had fallen into as they were waging war against Paul in something that the military refers to as friendly fire. Friendly fire is when soldiers who are on the same side of a battle start targeting each other rather than targeting the enemy. Now, friendly fire almost always happens on accident, but it's a very real and very big problem in warfare. For example, in the Gulf War, did you know that 24% of all the American soldiers who died in the Gulf War died from friendly fire? 24%. See, friendly fire is something that can easily happen amongst families, for example, right? As we, people who should love each other end up attacking one another. It can happen. This friendly fire can happen in workplaces. And of course, it can happen in churches and in the body of Christ. And this is why it's so important that we take heed to what's written here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where we're reminded of the nature of the real battle we're engaged in and who our real enemy is. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a very powerful picture of what can happen when we lose sight of what the real battle is and who the real enemy is. In 1 Samuel, almost throughout the entire book, you see the nation of Israel is under attack by a foreign nation called the Philistines. And the Philistines, their whole deal is they're they're from a different area, the island of Crete, and they're coming and they're wanting to invade Israel and conquer their land and take it for themselves. And Israel, in a sense, then, therefore, is fighting for their very existence as a nation against this Philistine invasion. And you know what? They're actually winning until King Saul begins to be jealous of one of his young generals named David, who's very successful. And because of all his success, he begins to grow in popularity. And David's popularity makes Saul feel increasingly insecure and jealous. And so in his jealousy and in his insecurity, Saul sends some of his soldiers to go and sabotage David. But David escapes that sabotage attempt. And so Saul sends some more soldiers, right, to go and get David. And then when that doesn't work, he sends some more soldiers and some more to hunt after David and take him down until eventually Saul sends almost the entire army of Israel, including himself, to go and pursue David and try to kill him. And guess what happened in the meantime? Remember who the real enemy was? The Philistines who are trying to invade your country? Well, if you divert your entire army to go in a chase after somebody who's actually on your same team, guess what happened? The army of Israel is distracted chasing David around. In the meantime, the Philistines move in, and they invade almost the entire country. And you know what's so sad and ironic about the whole thing? That in the end, the Philistine invasion of Israel is the thing which led to Saul's personal downfall and death. See, Saul was so distracted hunting after David, a man who was on his same team fighting against the same enemy, but because Saul forgot who the real enemy was, it it led to his own downfall, and it almost led to the end of Israel as a nation. You see, that story should be a stark warning to us of the folly of forgetting who the real enemy is and what the real battle is that we're engaged in. Paul's telling the Corinthians here, 
Guys, I am not your enemy, and you're not my enemy. We are on the same side. Let's not forget what the real battle is here, and, and rather than fighting against each other, let's join up and be united so we can fight the real battle against our real enemy. Maybe there are some of you who need to heed this advice. Maybe this is the word of the Lord to you today, that you've been fighting the wrong battles against the wrong people using the wrong weapons. Maybe there's some of you who need to heed this advice in your own relationships, in your marriage, in your workplace, perhaps with other believers. Our adversary would love to get you involved in friendly fire by helping you to forget the nature of the real battle we're engaged in and who the real enemy is. But in order for us to engage in the real battle, we need to be prepared and equipped with the right weapons. That leads us to the next part of our sentence. We can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence in God's power. That's what we see next, starting in verse 4. Here's what he says in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What Paul's saying is that if we're going to engage in the real battle, then we need to fight with the right weapons, just like the guy in the Indiana Jones movie, right? You can't fight a, in a gun battle with a sword in the same way you can't fight a spiritual battle using physical weapons, and you can't fight in this spiritual battle using methods or tactics which are not honoring to God. God's work needs to be done in God's ways. Paul was unwilling to resort to carnal methods, which might be effective at least in the short term, but they're not honoring to God. For example, Paul refused to engage in deceit or manipulation. He wasn't willing to cut corners or act in any way that was dishonest. He wasn't willing to use intimidation or coercion or violence in order to get the things done that he thought needed to be done. Instead of those worldly tactics, Paul reminds us that God has already given us his weapons so we can fight the real battle with the help of his divine strength. And if we use those weapons, we can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence because we're not relying on our own strength or cleverness or ability to do it, but upon something that is full of God's divine power, which is more powerful and more capable than the best of what we could ever stir up or, or muster up in and of ourselves. God's divine power is the power by which he created the world. His divine power is the power by which Jesus performed miracles. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that can move mountains. It's the power by which all things are possible. And he says these weapons that he's given us, they have this divine power, and they have the ability to tear down these strongholds. So what are these weapons of our warfare that God has given us to fight this battle, which are endowed with God's divine power? Well, our first hint is here in verse 4, where we're told that these weapons are the kind of weapons that are able to destroy strongholds. What are the strongholds that Paul has in mind here? We find that out by looking at our next verse, but that leads us to the next part of our sentence. So let's look at that. We can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence in God's power and relying on God's truth. Because it says in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
The strongholds that Paul's talking about in verse 4 are explained in verse 5. See, the strongholds are, we could put it this way, they are deeply ingrained ways of thinking. Deeply ingrained ways of thinking which are contrary to God's truth, contrary to the knowledge of God. Now, one of the things this tells us is that one of the primary battlefields in which spiritual warfare takes place is the battlefield of our minds. Let me say that one more time. One of the primary battlefields in which spiritual warfare takes place is the battlefields of our minds. And that makes a lot of sense if you look at the other passages in the Bible that talk about spiritual warfare. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about the devil and what he does. And he says this, he's about the devil. There is no truth in him, and when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, this is what the devil does. He loves to tell you lies about God, lies about yourself. That's his whole gig. He tells lies. He's been doing it since the beginning when he told Adam and Eve that God didn't really love them, that God didn't really have their best interest in mind, that he didn't want what was best for them, he didn't really want them to be happy, and that God, what God had said to them wasn't actually true when he told them that they would be happier if they ate the forbidden fruit and that they wouldn't actually die, it wouldn't really hurt them. Those were all lies. And the devil does the same thing with you and with me. He loves to whisper lies to you, to tell you that nobody actually cares about you. Everybody would be happier if you were gone. God doesn't really love you. God isn't fair. You've already done too much. You've gone too far to be forgiven or redeemed. You should eat that forbidden fruit, and then you'll be happy. I, I want you to do this. I want you to ask yourself this. What are some of the lies of the devil that you personally are most prone to believing? I think that will differ person to person. I think it's something for you to consider deeply. What are some of the lies of the devil that you personally are prone to believe? You see, the way we fight this spiritual battle, Paul tells us, is by destroying these arguments that are elevated and set up against God, which are raised against the knowledge of God, and by taking every thought captive to Christ. So what are the weapons of our warfare that God has given us so we can engage in the spiritual battle? Well, if we look back over at Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. First, he tells us the nature of this battle. Then he tells us who we're fighting against. And then he says this in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then in the verses that follow from verse 14 to verse 18, Paul gives us a list of what the spiritual armor and what the spiritual weapons are that God has given to us. And he gives us there a list of five defensive tools and two offensive weapons. Five defensive tools, two offensive weapons. Let's look at them quickly. The first of the defensive tools is the belt of truth. In a, in a Roman soldier's armor, the belt was very important because it held everything together. Without a belt, you're a mess. Things are just falling all over the place, right? In the same way, knowing the truth of what God says protects us against the lies of the enemy. Next is the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate does what? It protects your heart. 
the seat of your emotions, understanding the message of the gospel, that God loves you so much that he came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ in order to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death, in order to take your sins upon himself and in exchange to give you his righteousness as a gift. So that now, if you have received that gift of his grace by faith, when God looks at you, he sees someone who has been declared righteous. Not because of anything you've done or earned, but because of what Jesus did for you. Listen, when you have that settled in your heart, that because of what Jesus did for you, you are righteous before God, you know what it does? It protects your heart against the lies of the enemy. When Satan would tempt you with lies that God doesn't really love you, that God has never really done anything for you, your heart is guarded by the truth of the gospel that you're able to fall back on. Next, we read about the shoes, which are the readiness of the gospel. Roman soldiers wear these shoes that had spikes in the soles, right? They were kind of like cleats, like that a runner or a football player might wear. Uh, they were cleats, and the purpose of those cleats was so that they could dig in their feet into the ground, and when someone was pushing against them, they would be able to hold their ground and not slip backwards, and that's what the gospel does for us. It gives us a firm footing that keeps us grounded. It keeps us also moving forward. It helps us to keep moving forward to share the good news of God's love and grace that we've experienced with others. Next, we read about the shield of faith. Think about what a shield is. A shield is something that you take with you as you move, right? You carry it with you to defend you as you're on the move. It's something you defend those things that are aimed at you uh, as you're on your way. And in the same way, faith is about active trust in God's promises, right? Faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. So as we're on the go, doing what God says, we're able to rebuff the attacks of the enemy by responding in faith to God. Because here's the thing about faith. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. You know that? The more you use it, the stronger it gets. As you exercise your faith, what will happen is you will experience God's faithfulness over and over. You take a step of faith and you experience his faithfulness. So your faith goes strong, grows stronger as you exercise it and as you continually see God's faithfulness as you obey him by faith. Okay, next we see the helmet of salvation. You see, the knowledge of what God has done for you and, that he, and how he has saved you, that protects your head. It protects your head. You know, when I, was a, when I was younger, I used to snowboard a lot. I still snowboard a lot. But when I was younger, you know, back in those days, nobody wore helmets, right? Like, if you saw somebody wearing a helmet, you're like, that guy must be from out of town, right? Like, uh, I worked in a snowboard shop, and we sold helmets, and they just collected dust, right? The only people who bought helmets were moms who bought them for their kids. But now here we are years later, and I wear a helmet. Everybody I know wears a helmet. In fact, if you see somebody who's not wearing a helmet, you know what you say? That guy must be from out of town, right? Because uh, the only people who don't wear helmets are people who don't snowboard very much because, or ski very much because everybody wears a helmet on the mountain, especially anybody who takes it seriously. You see, um, when I started wearing a helmet, I remember it was about 10 or so years ago, um, I noticed something happened very quickly within me as a result of wearing that helmet. What happened is that I gained a lot more confidence 
by wearing that helmet, especially when it came to more challenging terrain or, for, for, for example, taking bigger jumps or big drops, things like that. I was more confident because I knew kind of subconsciously I don't need to worry as much about my head. You see, that's what the knowledge of salvation does for us. It's like a helmet protecting your head that gives you confidence in the midst of the battle you're engaged in, knowing that you're safe and secure in Jesus. But then, you know, after telling us about these defensive tools, Paul then shifts to tell us about the offensive weapons that God has given us. The first of these offensive weapons is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The next one is prayer. That's the other offensive weapon, praying at all times in the Spirit. With the defensive elements, we're protected ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. But then we take the offensive tools in order to tear down the strongholds, those deeply ingrained patterns of thought that we might have or that other people might have, and we seek to take captive every thought for Christ. The way to combat the lies of the enemy is with the truth of God's word. We want to take every thought and bring it into alignment with God's truth rather than with Satan's lies. You know what that means? It means that you and I, we need to examine our thoughts and our feelings. In other words, we don't, just because we think something or just because we feel something doesn't mean it's correct or true, right? We want to ask the question, is this thought in alignment with God's truth? What does God's word say about this? The goal is that we would be then transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can experience what Jesus said when he said, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a, that's a very well-known verse. But do you know what Jesus said right before that? It's also worth paying attention to. Here's what Jesus said in the sentence right before that. He said, the way to know the truth the truth which will set us free from the bondage of lies is this, to abide in his word. That's how we come to know the truth. That's how we're set free by the truth, by abiding in his word and thereby being his disciples. You see, as we spend time reading and hearing and studying God's word, the Bible, these are God's very words given to us, his truth, which is able to set us free from the bondage to lies. And that brings us to the final part of this sentence. We can engage in the spiritual battle with confidence in God's power and relying on God's truth, knowing that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory. Paul finishes this thought here by saying this in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Although this faction in the Corinthian church was challenging Paul's authority as an apostle, Paul wants them to know that he still does have authority, whether they acknowledge it or not, and he's willing to exercise that authority if necessary. Now, the punishment that Paul has in mind when he uses that word punishment, most likely what he's referring to is a form of church discipline, which would be very similar to, for example, the situation we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which was 
really the most extreme measure of discipline used to deal with a person in the church who was unrepentantly sinning and hurting others. The purpose was to protect others from being hurt further and also to cause that person to realize the error of their ways and to repent so they could be then reconciled to God and reconciled to the church and the person they had sinned against. But as we consider this spiritual battle that we're in, We can be confident knowing that God has given us everything we need so we can be prepared to engage in this battle, not ill-equipped or underprepared like in my reoccurring dream that I often have, right? He's given us the armor of God to protect us and the spiritual weapons to fight this spiritual battle with his word and in prayer. He's reminded us of who our real enemy is and who it is not. But as we consider who our real enemy is, We must remember that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death on the cross. Because on the cross, as Jesus breathed his final breath, he declared, it is finished. And because of what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we are told in Colossians chapter 1 that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In order for this to be true, not just in general, but in order for it to also be true for you personally, in order for your sins to be forgiven, in order for you to be rescued from the domain of darkness and to receive redemption and the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus, what is required of you and me is for us to receive that gift of what God has done for us in Jesus by putting your faith and your trust in him. Let's put it this way. We have a common mantra in our world today. We say, believe in yourself. Well, the message of the gospel is this. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Don't rely on yourself, your own ability, your own goodness, your own ability to get it done. No, no, no. Believe in, rely on, Trust in Jesus and what he has done for you to save you, to forgive you, and to rescue you. And as you trust in him, not only will you receive this gift of salvation, but you know what? You'll receive confidence to engage in the spiritual battle, knowing that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory. Would you please bow your heads with me? You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.